All right, we're going to get started this evening with a word of prayer and working on a couple technical difficulties. Mr. Young will have to use the hymn book tonight, but I think you will be able to see the words, either one, on the hymn book, in the hymn book, or on the screen. Uh, so your job is easy. We're going to make it hard on him to check his vision tonight as we get started. Well, if you would, make sure you have uh, one, of tonight, one of tonight's lesson sheets. Uh, notes are available online, too, but then on our... Uh, there's prayer requests there on the back of it. Those are at the Welcome Center, so make sure you have that. And a number of things coming up, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes as we get started. But let's open with a word of prayer tonight and starting a new study, a new book of the Bible that we're going to be studying through. I'm excited about it, and we'll see if we can share some of that excitement together in just a little while. Lord, we are grateful to you um, that we can come before you that we can speak to you as our God, that we can communicate with you, and that in turn, because we have your spirit, because you have uh, given priesthood to all those that believe in you, you've allowed us to come before you, and then in turn, you speak to us through your spirit and by your word, and so we ask tonight that as we come before you, that we would submit to that word, that we would take very seriously what it is that you are trying to communicate to us, uh, what you have chosen to uh, preserve in your word for us to learn and to grow by it. And so as we open your word tonight, may that be the preeminent goal of our hearts and our lives, to see you as you have chosen to reveal yourself and then to see ourselves in light of that. And so we pray that you would guide and direct us tonight. As we sing, as we praise you, as we carry uh, prayer to you uh, corporately in a moment on behalf of others in our church, uh, may each of those things glorify you. We are thankful for you, and we ask tonight that uh, you would help us in the middle of our week uh, to set aside the burdens of life or, or to set them on you, to cast them on you, uh, that you would help us to be unhindered and undistracted. Uh, in our lives, and how we seek to know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can stand if you would, and we're glad to have the Youngs back from Florida. It feels like they brought the weather with them as they came, and uh, we're glad they're back. He's going to lead us in a few songs tonight. Nothing but love. All right, take your Bible tonight and turn to the book of Esther, if you would. Book of Esther, if I'm not mistaken, 17th book of the Bible or something around that. And midway through the Old Testament and the final book of the historical portion, the historical narrative portion of the Old Testament. So find your place there, a new section of God's Word for us tonight that we've been in in comparison to the last few weeks. In December, we did a, a short study on the book of Habakkuk, and in the last oh, year and a half, two years, we've studied a number of places of the Old Testament on Wednesday evenings, especially. We have uh, looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. We studied the book of Daniel. We did a small portion of uh, Jeremiah and uh, studied through those, and we're going to do another Old Testament book on Wednesday evenings tonight, the book of Esther. So as you find your place there, if you would, and you have your lesson sheet tonight, sort of an introduction to the book, and we're going to kind of walk our way. We're going to read the first portion of the book to set the scene, and then we're going to walk through an introduction of it tonight, kind of cast the vision, if you would, for our study for the next few weeks. It's 10 chapters, but some of them are shorter, not a, not a very long book in comparison to other portions of Scripture, but one that is very uh, full for us this evening. And so if you would, look in Esther chapter number 1. Now, when we studied Daniel, I believe it was sometime last year, end of 2021 into 2022, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, we studied through Daniel. We kind of took a couple different nights and took a few moments on each of those nights as we started different events in the life of Daniel, and we uh, almost humorously a little bit uh, brought up the point that those, there's some of the more familiar children's stories that we teach in Bible schools or kids' classes or kids' clubs, 
And ironically, that's so because they're not exactly kids' stories. And we brought up a few of them in, in the book of Daniel where they say uh, this religious or this ruler of the most powerful empire at that point in the world makes this rule against religious uh, exercises or religious expression. And, and he makes a rule against that, says you have to bow to me for a certain length of time. If you don't, and he says, I'm going to, and there's different consequences at different times. We're going to burn you to death. We're going to burn you alive. Or we're going to throw you to lions, and we're going to let them devour and eat you alive. And then, so they're cast into that, and one doesn't burn. And then the people that were responsible for that, some of them burned alive. And then uh, in the lion's den, some of them were cast in and eaten alive. Not children's stories. Esther is another one of those that we often teach. We think of that as uh, sort of a story of Scripture, but in fact it's an account, it's an event. And if you look closely, as we're going to in the next few weeks, it is not a children's story. And I think we're going to see that as we walk through it. But we want to lay the summary as, or quick idea as to why we're going to study the book of Esther. And quick summary of the book, if you were just to speak it, it reads a little bit like a Cinderella story at first. You have a radical life transformation of a beautiful Jewish orphan girl who is living in a foreign land away from her home country. Her family and her uh, nation has been held in captivity now for more than eight decades apart from where they were from. And she is raised by an older cousin, sort of an uncle figure to her after she is orphaned. She's raised in that. It doesn't really tell us a whole lot about her actual lifestyle, whether it was poverty or in riches, but you can kind of assume because of the captivity that she had some limitations, and yet she is transformed, and she raises to the heights of this princess-type figure, and then she is made ultimately the queen of the most powerful empire in the world at that point. So you have this quick rise, and then in the background all the while, she's being counseled by her loving older cousin that raised her as his own and uh, she you have this evil villain that plots to destroy the wise older man and the new young queen and he's plotting that and then eventually it's kind of flipped on its head and he bears the punishment it it reads a little bit like a, a, a fairy tale in a way and yet it is quite the opposite and as we walk through it you look at esther there is no miracle and what I mean by miracle, there is, there is no supernatural act of God over nature or divine intervention in terms of a physical miracle, something physical against the laws of nature. You don't see that. There's no doctrinal statement in the book of Esther. There is no prophecy in the book of Esther. There's not even a promise to God's people in the entire book of Esther. So why then, and what possible relevance could be held for us, in an account from 2,500 years ago, events that happened in what is now modern-day Iran, and that's a good question, and we're going to cover that for the next few weeks to find its personal meaning for us, but before that, we need to discover its broader meaning within the Word of God. And so let's look at Esther chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days... Vahazarus, now it clarifies who this is, and by its clarity, we know that this is also a king that goes by the name of Xerxes. It says, This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, or another city, another name for it would be Susa, he was sitting in his palace. Here's how big the kingdom was. There was kind of four capital cities. It, it, it spread, the empire spread. So why? In fact, I can give you a, a picture of it. This is a Google Maps view of that area of the world. And it shows you kind of, by the time that Ahasuerus took over, this is how vast it had spread. All the way from India, across to the Mediterranean, down into Egypt and Ethiopia. A humongous empire. So much so that it had four different capital cities, two in particular in which the king would travel back and forth to by season. He had a, a winter capital and a summer capital, and at this point he's in his winter capital, and he's there, and look at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, that's important to note these dates, in the third year of his reign, 
He made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and of Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, notice this, even 104 score days, he throws a 180-day party. I mean, that's, that is living. You know, if, if you think about it, they, they had a different perspective on life. Like, we are good to get a half day off on Christmas Eve. He says, you know what? We've had some pretty good success. Let's feast for half a year. Let, why not? And so he does. And when these days were expired, notice what he does. So he finishes this feast. The king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shusha in the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now it's not just the rich royal people. He says, you know what? The whole city can party for seven days. Where were white, green, blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble? The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. And they gave them drink of vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel us. This isn't a forced thing. It says, For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. And Vashti, or Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let's stop there for a moment and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we begin to walk through your word in this portion of scripture, may we first seek its meaning in the greater story of redemption, your plan throughout all of history and for mankind, your plan for your own glory and for your own namesake for eternity. And then may we now apply it to our own day, to our present lives from that and in that perspective. And we ask that you would help us for we are weak without you, and we know nothing apart from you. And so we ask that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you see, the book of Esther opens with this feast. In fact, historically, uh, he was having such a good time. It's not clear as to whether he called this feast to plan war, but within this feast, he ends up planning war. If you look at some of the historical writings of the uh, Persians and Medes and the kingdoms and different things. He has this gigantic feast that he's throwing for the royal princes, the rulers. His, his kingdom, his empire is broken down into these 127 different districts or provinces and all those rulers come. And when they're all gathered together, just like you're having any good time, you have great ideas at those points. And evidently they begin talking. Greece, the empire of Greece has started to rise up. And within this banquet and feast, they decide, I'm, we're going to go attack Greece too. Uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't turn out well for them. They lose to them in those battles. And then eventually, uh, not too long after, they lose to Greece completely. But they had risen to such power and magnificence that he throws a half-year feast. And in that feast, he's like, let's go conquer another empire while we're at it. So you see some of the setting and the background into which this is laid. But God's people here are intermingled. And so let's look at that as to how, it, uh, how we see and find them. Notice, we're going to look at uh, first the, the introduction, if you would, of the book. And we're going to just walk through quickly. You have some of the notes there about it. Truth is, we're not going to spend a very long time here because any quick research of any sort of commentary or Bible resource can give you a vast amount of uh, a wealth of knowledge about this portion of Scripture because it's not just scripture that has this recorded, but there's other historical writings and recordings that have a lot of detail about this point in history. So we see there the author is generally unknown. Historically, people have said, God's people, Israel, kind of assumed it was Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, but it's not really relevant to our writing. It's, it's a book that was entered into God's canon, kept by God's people, and has been preserved for us. Then notice the date and time uh, as far as when it took place. The book of Esther takes place between 483 and 473 B.C., so almost five centuries before Jesus comes uh, to Bethlehem. And then you see this is between. So the, the Jews have already returned. So you have the Babylonian captivity that we studied in Daniel. That has already happened. And then remember, Persia comes in, the handwriting on the wall and the different things that are involved. 
Persia comes in and takes over Babylon. And when they do, uh, Daniel goes for Cyrus and they say, you can send people back to Israel to start rebuilding your kingdom. And so some people, a few thousand people, have gone back to Jerusalem and that rebuild has sort of begun. Barely, but it has begun. Then you have what takes place in the book of Esther. And after Esther, you have Ezra and Nehemiah going back and sort of the the more full restoration of Jerusalem and God's people heading back to the kingdom. So this happens right on the tail end of the Babylonian captivity, but before the kingdom of Israel has been restored in any way, before Jerusalem has been restored. Then I want you to notice a timeline within the book of Esther for a moment, because I think that's going to help us as we study and walk through it. Because often, if you just blaze through the book of Esther and read it, it reads almost like this happened over the course of a few days. Like this, like, you know when you watch a, a, a movie and, and it's not very clear, or you read a book, it's sometimes not clear how much time has expired, and then other times it's very clear how much time has expired. So for instance, the banquet that we just read about in chapter number 1, verse number 3, it says that it took place in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. So third year of his reign, he throws this feast, everything's going well. And we're gonna, we know that in a moment, Vashti is going to reject him, and he rejects her as queen, casts her out. But he does not immediately call Esther to be his wife. He gives this kind of command of, oh, I've got to find another queen now. You're going to take care of that. And actually, you go back historically, he then goes off to war with Greece. Because notice, Esther is not made queen till chapter 2, verse 16, which is the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. So you're talking almost four years between this banquet And when Esther becomes the queen, four years have expired. So you have a lot that's going on there. And she's part of this harem of the king for quite a while, this training period that you have there. Then notice she's made queen. And it kind of reads like, if you just roll through it, it kind of reads like she's made queen. Then Haman, we know is the, he's the evil villain. He hates Mordecai and he makes this decree. It kind of reads like it all happens quickly, but notice It says in chapter 3, verse 7, that that doesn't happen until the 12th year of his reign. So let's do math for a moment. From the time that Esther marries the king and becomes the queen to the time that this conflict arises, how long has she been married? How long has she been queen? About five years. So it is not that this all happened so quickly and, and it is picturesque. All of a sudden, she's this wonderful queen of the world. She's had to live in this circumstance. We're going to go into that in a moment. She's had to live in that circumstance for five years years. The killing is scheduled for 11 months later. If you're not familiar with that, Haman comes and he makes, he hates Mordecai and he hates Mordecai so much that he says, we're going to make a rule not just to kill Mordecai, but to kill anyone that is Jewish, anyone related to Mordecai. We're going to destroy them from the face of the earth. And they set a date about 11 months later to the day in which they say, we're all across the whole empire. We're going to kill all of the Jews. And that was his plan. About three months later is when everything sort of comes to light and everything happens and you have Esther's banquet with the king and everything set in line. And then notice that chapter 9, 10, so you're blazing through years of time in chapters 1 through 8. It covers a good portion, about 9, 10 years of history. And chapters 9 and 10, it's like slow motion. It's two days of history. And so we're going to get there at the end and see a little bit of what happens Then notice, you see the background, the setting, and the events that take place. Persia has now ruled over Palestine, or eventually rules over Palestine for about 200 years, or this area of the Medes, a Persian combination of the two. So the Hebrew population spreads throughout the whole Persian kingdom. They're all over the place throughout that area of the world. And while they lived in generally peaceful circumstances, Israel wasn't facing a lot of war, they consistently faced hatred and disdain. And we're going to see that as well in the book of Esther in a moment. Then you have some things of note, just some things of interest that don't hold any real spiritual significance. Don't give me, don't, don't misunderstand here, but it's just of note. It's one of two books named after a woman in the Bible. It's one of four books that's not quoted in the New Testament. Uh, the events that happen in Esther and the freeing and the victory of God's people and their protection. They still celebrate that even today with the celebration of the the holiday of uh, Purim, which is one of two Jewish holidays 
not given in Mosaic law that's still celebrated today. The other one is Hanukkah. So it's a real historical event that happened and has continued to be celebrated throughout history. It's also, and this is where we're going to kind of take a turn and dig a little deeper as to why we're in this book. It's also one of two books in which God is not ever specifically mentioned. The other one is Song of Solomon. You won't find a name of God. You won't really even find a direct reference to God. The closest thing that you get is when they are in council, Esther and Mordecai in council about what to do, they go back and forth and talk about we need to fast and pray. That's, that's as close of a reference as you get to God in all of the book of Esther. And isn't that interesting? We're going to compare in a moment Esther to some other books of Scripture in the Old Testament, particularly that carry similar themes, and yet Esther approaches it from a completely different direction. And why is that? You see there sort of the title of this series. You have it there on the front of your bulletin we put up a moment ago. We're calling it The Hidden King. And what we mean by that is that God is hidden in the sense that his name is not mentioned, and yet he is still ruling and reigning. It is not that he is absent. It is that he is hidden, that he is not perceived, and that he is not quickly identified. His name is not latched to each and every event that happens in the book. And yet what we're going to find is that even in moments where God seems hidden and we perceive it as absence, that God is actually still ruling and reigning in every single detail. And so let's look at a few things tonight. Let's look first at the big picture. Now we're going to go to a few references in Esther, but we're not really going to get into the verse-by-verse study until next week. So first, let's look at this, the big picture, because it's important to see where does Esther stand, the book of Esther, stand in relation to the Bible and in relation to God's sovereign plan over the world and mankind, his history of timeline. Where does Esther stand and what importance does it hold in all of that? And you see there, it's important to see the details of the Bible in light of the big picture. If you're going to, if you're going to, kind of view it as an illustration of art. You go into an art gallery or an art museum and there's beautiful portraits and there's other just giant scenes that are painted and some of them can be massive. And if you stand so close to them, you could say this is a picture of brown and white brushstrokes. Because if you're standing this close to the picture, that's all you're going to see. And you're going to see each individual stroke and you're going to see a minute amount of detail and you're going to see focused on some colors and say, well, this is a picture of, it's just brown and white. But if you're to step back, you may see a full picture of its beauty and where, it, where that brown and white stroke holds, that it may be part of a scene of a waterfall or a beautiful painting, a portrait of a person. And so when you look at Esther, we cannot so focus on every single tiny minute thing before we see its broad picture in the scope of God's plan and his providence. There's a quote I came across in a book about listening to God's spirit. And you see it there. I have it listed. It says, when we're doing our Bible interpretation, we're not, to, we're not in a playground having fun, making it mean what we want to mean and caring little if others make it mean something else. You see kids on a playground and one kid goes down the slide and one kid goes up the slide. One kid swings on the swing. One kid launches off the swing. You know, one kid goes across the monkey bars on, with his hands. One kid walks across on his feet dangerously, and everyone shrieks in terror. You, you have different people use it differently. God's word is not that way. It is not to meant to be used by us as individuals to say what we need it to say in our lives at our moment. It is first meant to speak truth, and then from that truth we apply it to our lives individually and personally. Our goal is not simply to interact and have fun with God's word or be moved emotionally, or, or to bring our own lives into the storyline of God's word. The purpose is to discern the meaning, the truth. I'll read for you. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll read one verse from Romans. Romans chapter 15 gives us a little bit of an explanation as to how we can view the book of Esther. Romans chapter 15, verse number 4. Romans chapter 15, verse number 4. And it's referring to the whole of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Paul writes this, Romans 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our what? 
learning that we through patience and comfort of the what? Scriptures might have hope. So why is Esther there? Why do we read it? Is it because your life is just like Esther's? Probably not. Is it because you're going to experience something like Esther did? Probably not. Is it because you're, we individually are going to face something like Mordecai and we need to use wisdom and be brave and bold for the Lord? Probably not. Though those circumstances may arise in their own way, that's not why it's given to us. It is given that we might learn and through comfort of Scripture have hope. Esther is a book of hope. It is the truth of God, though, you cannot, though his name is not spoken and his actions are not revealed, he is clearly there. And so as we look through, we see this big picture. We have to be careful and cautious of a few things. And we've mentioned this a number of times. When we went through Daniel, we mentioned the same thing. That when we look at Bible, I'll call them characters, Bible people. They're not fantasy characters, but the people that we read about in the Bible... We have to be cautious about moralizing them or moralizing a portion of Scripture. And what I mean by moralizing a portion of Scripture, meaning I read the book of Esther, I see things that she did, and I th see things that Mordecai did that turned out well and that were good. I need to do those things. I read about Haman and Ahasuerus and their wicked lifestyle. One is flamboyantly prideful. The other is secretly sinister. And I read those and say, I don't do those things. But that is a very shallow reading of God's word. Though that can, in a way, be applied, that means we're basing our lives off the imperfection of sinners, but rather our example and our, the truth of hope that is found there is God himself. The hope in the book of Esther is not Esther was brave. Mordecai did some cool things and brave things. So if I am brave, God will be glorified. That's not the message of Esther. And so we have to be careful not to just moralize it by only looking at the characteristics of the people there. When we do that, we limit the application of the portions of God's word to what we should and shouldn't do. And so we don't do that. We don't ignore what God is teaching us about God's kingdom and ultimately God's king. So we have to be cautious about narrowly seeing just the human characteristics. You have Esther, who's the beautiful queen protagonist. Mordecai, who's the wise yet insignificant in terms of how the world viewed him. His helper helping from underneath. You have a hazardous, egotistical, womanizing ruler. Haman, this sinister, evil person that it's evil, easy for us to hate him while he basks in the shadows. What we need to do is do diligence to see Christ in the book. In every portion of Scripture that you read, we seek Christ. We seek God in the book. And so as we see that, it, you may say, well, that seems difficult if it never even says God's name. But when we look at it, it's actually far easier than we think. You, think, you can see it in the pictures, the promises, the symbols, and even the people of the Old Testament. They're all meant to be understood as pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan. For instance, there's echoes, even in the people that we're going to read about. Esther, this humble young woman who eventually goes on behalf of others and mediates for God's people at risk of her own life and punishment and pain. Does that sound familiar? You have Mordecai, who is overlooked, and yet though he is overlooked, eventually rises to power and great influence by his wisdom and by what God is doing. And you see in the book of Esther, you can see Jesus all over. You have King Ahasuerus, who is wicked and self-consumed. And yet we know that Jesus is a better king. We know that Jesus has a better kingdom, though it is powerful. The kingdom of Persia is powerful. That Jesus' kingdom is better. He does not rule by victory and warfare, but rather by grace extended to those that are his enemies. We find a better mediator in Christ than Esther was. We find that she was given this new identity as queen and royalty, but we find that in Jesus, we find our identity given to us as the sons and ch the children of God. We find a better servant. We find a better savior. You have this reversal in, in Esther, don't you? Where God's people, where, where the people are given the sentence of death. And the one who makes the sentence of death is evil, and he's plotting to destroy God's people. And yet, at the end, you have this reversal where 
it is not God's people that experience death. It's the one who planned death in the first place. Does that theme sound familiar to you? In which there is this greater reversal in which Jesus says, you were condemned to die, and yet through grace, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that is flipped on its head. And the one who brought sin into this world and death with it will have the sentence of death over him. And so you see it that it's, not, it's a picture in a moment of what is coming eternally. And so that's the general picture. And you can get into a mess sometimes when you look so closely. It doesn't mean we shouldn't look closely at Scripture, but when we look without seeing the big picture, you can get into a mess, can't you? Look at God's Word. You can look at God's law. I'll give you an illustration. I, I struggle sometimes. When I walk through portions of the Old Testament, I'm looking at Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I'm looking at specifics of God's law and the Mosaic law and different things. And sometimes I try to link every little law that he gave to some part of his characteristics or his holiness or his righteousness. Well, because he made this rule, then he is like this. And this speaks about his righteousness. When God actually tells us what his law was for, the law that he made for Israel was to separate them out from the rest of the world. Not because everything in that law itself was holy and righteous in, to, in the sense of they had to wash their pan, pots and pans in a certain way. Their eating habits had to be refined to certain animals. How they carried out certain things in their daily basis, even within their home, had to be done in a certain way. God says, I didn't give you those laws so that you would think that makes you more like God. I gave you those laws so you would be distinct. Why? Because the Messiah is going to come from you. Because you could get easily lost in this world, and as you're spread about into empires and taken into captivity, you could get lost, and who knows where in the world the Israelites went. But if you will hold to these laws because I have asked you to, it will be clear who the people are from which the Messiah will come. And if you don't see that in the big picture, then you can get missed, and you can miss that and get all twisted in the wrong place. And so as we study the book of Esther, our goal these next few weeks is to see the big picture. That leads us to the next thing, and we're going to answer what is the big picture with a couple other ideas. First, this one, what's the big question? And we kind of already addressed it. Where in the world is God in the book of Esther? Where is he? Well, the overarching thing you have there of Scripture is God's plan with the constant work of the devil attacking it. You have it starting in Genesis where God creates mankind, places him in a certain environment for a certain purpose and reason. The devil enters it, and he thwarts that, and he convinces them to sin, and all of a sudden there's judgment rather than fellowship against man. Yet in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise, and he says, I'm going to separate. There's going to be war between the seed of man, and there's going to be war between man and the devil. And ultimately, from man is going to come one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He says, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to bite and cause some pain for a little while. But eventually, there's going to come one who will crush all sin and evil. Everything that Satan brought into this world will one day be crushed and defeated by the Messiah, the one that is coming. And from that moment on, the devil fights and works against it. And you see it in Scripture in a number of ways. For instance, we find examples of people carrying out the evil work of the devil with God's plan of redemption being opposed at every point. That's what gives significance to Haman's plan. Haman's plan to kill all the Jews was not significant just because of who the Jews were. It's not even just significant because it's God's people. It's not just significant because it's egregious and it's genocide and it's war and it's murder. Those are all big. But the thing that makes it most significant is this. God said from the line, he promised Abraham from your seed, Israel, Isaac, Jacob, and even through David, from your seed, from your line, there is going to come a human being born into this world, a Savior, Messiah, fully God and fully man, that will redeem all sinners that come before him, that will give redemption to sinners and let them stand at peace with their God. That's going to come, and it's going to come through this line. Now, Haman says, no, he doesn't ever talk about the Messianic prophecy, Haman says, I hate them, and I'm going to kill them all. So ultimately, it counters God's promise. You have God's promise from the Jews, there's going to come a Messiah. Haman says, no, there's not. All the Jews are going to be gone. And so the book of Esther is ultimately about this. Does God's plan win? 
or does man's plan win? Does God's power reign or does Satan's power reign? And so you also see not just evil being carried out in this picture, but you also have God using his own people to accomplish his own plan and purpose. In the same way that evil people carry out Satan's objective, God uses people to carry out his objectives. So why isn't God's name used in the book? I like this. I read a, uh, read a quote Spurgeon was preaching on when God is unseen in Scripture. And Spurgeon said this. He says, I've seen portraits bearing the names of people for whom they were intended that certainly needed them. In other words, he says, I've seen portraits of people that have the person's name at the bottom. And if it didn't have the person's name at the bottom, I wouldn't know who in the world that portrait was of. You know, your kids bring you a picture and they, they draw it and it's beautiful in our eyes. And you say, well, who is this? And you say, it's daddy. It's, it's, it's you and me, daddy. And I'm like, well, why is he so round? <laughs> you know, I, why doesn't he have very much hair? Why is his hair purple? You know, and I'm looking at it and immediately looking at it, if, if I had no context and no idea who it was, I would not know who that was. And Spurgeon says, I've seen some portraits like that. But then he goes on to say that when you look at books like Esther, that although God is not mentioned, he is conspicuously evident in every incident that is there. And though the portrait doesn't have his name on it, when you look at it, it's clear who it's of. It's clear who is in control. And so that leads us to this. I mean, you think about it. Why would God not put his name on this book? It's so different. Think about it. We studied the book of Daniel. I want to just parallel for a moment tonight. And I know, again, some of this, a lot of this is just so much introduction. But I want us to have the right spirit entering our study of this book. Compare it with Daniel for a moment, the book of Daniel, where from the first sentence of Daniel that says, there was a time in which God's people, by God's control, that God gave them over to the king of Babylon. I mean, from the very first sentence, it says, God's in control. And then through the rest of the book, you have Daniel giving these great demonstrations of faith. You have Daniel declaring who his God is. We will worship only God. You never have that in the book of Esther. It's not there. There is boldness in that she goes in, but we're going to talk about throughout the next few weeks. You don't see great displays of faith in her. In fact, there's a, there's a significant absence of it in both of their lives throughout the early portion, portions of the book. But Daniel, from the first start, God is in control. God will be worshipped. God will be declared miraculous things fiery furnaces that no one burns, and lions that, that do not eat his children. Then there's prophecies in which God gives direct revelation, speaks audibly, gives dreams and visions. God's all over the book of Daniel saying, I'm in control, and I'm the real king, and look at why. Esther teaches the same lesson, but never mentions him. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Uh, I think here's the simplest reason, because it's the way God wanted it. <laughs> There's a lot of commentaries that argue as to why this is and the historical context and the point in history of Israel in which it was written and where and the geography and all that. Very simply, God designed this book this way. Why would he do that? Because with Daniel, he is declaring that even in the darkest moments of your life, when you are furthest away and when it is, when it is awful, there are moments that God will be so visible to you in his working that it will be obvious and there's nothing else it could be but God working in you but then he also gives us the book of Esther which says this in the dark moments of your life when God is not evident when it seems that he is absent he is still ruling and reigning and I don't know about you but I have both types of moments in my life and there are moments I am glad for the book of Daniel in which the, the characters that he gives us, the people that he chose, are bold and loud for the glory of God. And there's miracle after miracle, these mighty things that God does. But I'm also glad that there's moments and books in the Bible in which his name is not even whispered, in which the people that are there, it's almost questionable if they really are following God and have great faith in him or not. We can see that as we study. But I'm glad that God gives us this. And he answers this question, Let's finish with these last two. The big idea of Esther is that God is working regardless of perceived circumstance. 
The New City Catechism, it asks this question. It says, what is God? God is the creator, sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and his perfection. In his goodness and in his glory, his wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's a pretty good summary of the book of Esther. Though his name is never mentioned, that's what it teaches us. Because in Esther, God places his people and his servants in precise places at precise moments for specific reasons. And God works regardless of the circumstance. You, you know, there's nothing outstanding or truly overly remarkable about the people, God's people in this book. And yet God remains faithful. You say, well, what do you mean? Don't go home. I am not attacking Esther and Mordecai. As I'm not trying to vanquish all of your noble thoughts of these two people in God's word. But we're going to read as we walk through this, this book. There's nothing remarkable about their display of faith. There's nothing dynamic given to us about their relationship with God. Though I think that obviously it's strengthened as the book goes on. And yet God is faithful. It didn't require a superhero Christian as we think it does sometimes. It required a great and marvelous God. I'll give you a couple examples. Think about the circumstances that are happening in the book of Esther. You have Esther going in in chapter number two. It, to be honest, I have been emotional throughout the last few days studying the book of Esther because I have, my, I have my own kids and I have my own daughter specifically. I don't, we want to try to be delicate when we get through some of those chapters. It, it was not Cinderella putting on the glass slipper at the ball. That is not what happened. In fact, as you read it, if you would go to chapter 2, uh, in fact, turn there for just a moment. It's rough. You have a wicked king who calls this mighty feast, and it's so joyful and prideful, he plans a war during it asks his wife to come in and dance for all the nobles. When she doesn't, he says, Psh, she's not going to be the queen anymore. Then he sends out to every 127 provinces. It doesn't say specifically how many come from each one, but there's at least 127. Bring women in, the best of all that are unmarried. Bring them in. And, and how he does this, he has these eunuchs that he has set aside so they don't grow affection toward these young ladies and he says, we're going to groom them. We're going to put makeup on them. We're going to make them beautiful. for All for himself. So prideful. And then notice how he's going to decide. For instance, verse chapter 2. Look at verse number 14. Or verse 13. How's he going to decide who's going to be the queen? Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. So she gets to take whatever she wants. Notice verse 14. In the evening she went in. And on the morrow, she returned. Let us sink in for a moment. Into the second house of the women. There was a second house. So they leave one house. They come in in the evening. They leave in the morning. And they go to another house. Into the custody of Shashgag, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in to the king no more after that. She goes in for one night. Doesn't come in again, except the king delighted in her and that she were called by name. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> the, a little girl who has grown up in Mordecai's care. <laughs> every dream she's ever had of finding love. Every dream her family has had for her. This orphan girl of being protected one day by her husband is gone in an instant. And then you fast forward. Remember the timeline that we put up? The timeline in which Haman makes his plan and Mordecai goes to Esther? It's five years later. And notice, turn to chapter 4 with me for just a moment. Notice what happens. I, I just, I'm just, again, I know this is a longer one tonight. We always do this with introductions. But I want you to think about the circumstance in which we are reading about God's control. Notice her response. So, Mordecai comes in his mourning. The, the rule, the law that says all Israelites are going to be killed. We'll get to there in a few weeks. But Esther doesn't even know about it. They come to Esther and say, Mordecai's crying outside the gate. Esther has no clue what's going on. That's how detached she is from what's going on in the world. 
tells you the type of lifestyle she's being forced to live. Five years later, after being married five years before, what's her relationship like with her husband, this romantic queen, king, princess restored relationship? Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of king's provinces do know that whatsoever, this is Esther speaking, whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king should hold out the golden scepter that he may live. Notice this phrase. This is Esther speaking. I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. She's been married for five years. And Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, please go speak to your husband. She says, I haven't seen him in a month. The king, king didn't spend his time alone. So you can tell what kind of relationship she had. The tell, Bible tells us that the king didn't even know anything about her background. He has no idea that she's Jewish. He has no idea about her faith. There, there's nothing said. And you can say, well, that, is that a declaration on Esther? That she wasn't like Daniel? She wasn't praying? I, it, it, the Bible doesn't give us all that. This is not a good situation. God is absent in their minds and yet is fully in control. I want you to notice a final thing and, and we'll be done tonight. What's the big deal then? Esther, like I said, it's not a kid's story. But it teaches us that regardless of what we are focused on, that God controls and dictates Think about the shifts, the, par the shifts within the book of Esther. Mighty King Ahasuerus. And, and think about our own world today, how we kind of view it. Mighty King Ahasuerus. Military power, prideful, yet also very self-conscious, evidently, how he responds to his wife. Easily insulted. Quickly changes mind. Flippant, but also evil in how he rules overall. That's who has control. And yet, then you also see in the background, Haman, evil, sinister, secret guy. That's, he's the one that's actually in control. He, he's moving the, the visible ruler like a puppet. And you see, well, Ahasuerus is in control and has authority. But Haman actually has the most influence. And then Esther comes onto the scene. Oh, this is wonderful. Then Esther is received by the king and he offers her whatever she asks. And now Esther's kind of in control and Esther's getting to show and point the rules. This is a great turn. And then ultimately at the end of it, you have Mordecai making a decree, rising up to power where it says there was no one else beside him other than the king, the emperor. So Mordecai is now in great control. But we've missed it if that's what we see. That God can take bad people and cast them down and good people and lift them up. Here is what God is showing. Bad people, good people, no people, few people. God reigns and rules, not people. That's the big idea. That's the big deal. And we see this, that there is no God, and yet he is fully in control. I want to read this to you and we'll be done. If I can pull it up again. It disappeared on me. Make sure. Here it goes. You have it referenced there. Oh, oh, that's not it either. I'll pull up technology, right? And you can look this up, I'm sure, when you're done. Here's what it says. The weaver. And you can trust your own God, trust God to be the same in your own life says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors that he weaves steadily. Oft times he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper while I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he plans. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we study this book and look to our own lives to apply. We don't interpret the moments of our lives by the immediate impact or by the personal relevance because we always go wrong when we interpret life as it relates only to ourselves. So let's ask the Lord to help us to see 
this book in picture of his greater story. And we'll thank him for it. Father, thank you for your word. Teach it to us these next days and weeks. And as we read in a study, may you give us a passion and a zeal that you reign and rule outside of the church building, that your spirit is in control and that you are righteous and holy even outside the church service, that even when we do not feel moved and even when we do not see your control, that it is there and that you are God. And may you show that to us in these next days. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close tonight with a short time of prayer and a number of requests that people have brought before us. And I hope that tonight as you pray, you know, for several weeks we kind of had a prayer theme of whatever we were studying there on Wednesday nights. And the theme tonight, of course, would be obvious to pray. We thank God that he is in control regardless of circumstance. And I hope that as you begin to pray this evening, you'll spend a moment or two just praising the Lord, that even when we don't see and feel and hear Him in each individual circumstance, that He is reigning and ruling over all. You see, there are ministries of our church and, and several things that we have coming up in the next few weeks that we want to be helpful. Prayer vigil that's coming up on, I believe it's the 19th, and uh, membership classes that we're going to be doing together on Sunday evenings and uh, a number of things coming up and be praying for those. Uh, you see a few changes. Margaret Watson was moved to Hanover Healthcare. That's out of Vibra Hospital. So that's a big, big transition. So if you would pray for her and her continued recovery. Um, Barbara Sharp's daughter, Sherry, um, in chemo treatments and, and assessing next steps. Uh, we praise, give praise last week for Rachel Hogg's stepdad getting a a kidney transplant and praying for that uh, continued recovery and then most of all Rachel's asked us to pray for his salvation so if you would uh, pray for him um, Jacqueline is losing wisdom some point in the next few days and she's going to be less smart than she was before uh, but no she's having some wisdom teeth surgery uh, coming up I believe Thursday is that right tomorrow no that's I don't know what today is Thursday tomorrow uh, that is tomorrow and so be in prayer for her and, and a quick recovery on that. Uh, Glenn Gooding's having an outpatient procedure Monday, and if you would pray for him. And then uh, you see there Dick Lewis. This is the name of Jeff Lewis' father. They're not here tonight. Kathy's not feeling well, has some uh, respiratory stuff going on. And if you would pray for um, this is Jeff's dad. He's having lung surgery. It's scheduled for Friday, um, but his wife and, and he both are having some a little bit of illness and some some fever and some different things and so that may end up being postponed so if you would pray first that it wouldn't be and then that if it is um, that they will be healthy until that point um, that that's needed all right let's spend a few moments in prayer together I encourage you to pray there as a family tonight i know a long-winded speaker tonight in an introduction so we'll pray just as families there tonight or slide over pray with a friend or a group of you together would be fine and then we'll be closed together in just a few minutes.